0: Hi, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined with a delightful Gerald McDermott. Jerry is an author and a retired professor. He served for five years as the Anglican Chair of Divinity at Sanford's Basin Divinity School. This followed 26 years at Roanoke College in Virginia, both in the USA. Jerry served as an author, a co-author, or editor of over 20 books. He's taught and written in the areas of history and doctrine, world religions, Anglican studies, and an 18th-century theologian, Jonathan Edwards. So just to begin, Jerry, can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the key events in your life that really helped to form your character and that's moved you to write so much about Christ and his
1: church? Sure, Mark. Uh, I I was raised a Roman Catholic uh, in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. I went to a Jesuit high school in New York City. Um, And then, like all good college students, after graduating, I joined the commune. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) Lived in communes, Christian communes, for a bunch of years. Met my wife there. We had our first two kids in a commune. Uh, The last one we lived in was a big old hotel in downtown Fargo, North Dakota, where 200 of us lived in community, having three meals a day with each other. And um, I ran a little Christian school there for people in the the commune and then outside the commune in in Fargo and Moorhead. Um. Uh, so um, I've been a Baptist preacher. Uh, I have served in Lutheran churches. I'm an Anglican priest now, an Anglican theologian. Um, I was a low church evangelical for many years until I read the fathers and saw the beauty of the sacraments and liturgy and the beauty of theology in the fathers And I was convinced that I could no longer remain a low church evangelical. I I must be part of a church that prizes the liturgy, that uses the classic historic liturgy and the beauty of the sacraments. And so about 30 years ago, I transitioned uh, back uh, into the Episcopal, uh, well, the Episcopal church. I, I was Episcopal priest for some years until I just couldn't do that anymore because of the post Christian character of the Episcopal Church in the United States. Um, and I'm now an Anglican in the Anglican Church of uh, North America. I, I, I taught uh, religion as a professor at an undergraduate college, actually a Lutheran, ELCA Lutheran College in Virginia, Roanoke College for 26 years, uh, teaching the world religions, theology of world religions, uh, Christian theology, Jewish thought, um, history of Christianity. And then for five years, I I was a professor of Anglican studies and I directed the Anglican program at uh, Beeson Divinity School, as you mentioned, in Birmingham, Alabama. And now I'm retired. Uh, I'm still writing and we can talk about that, but. uh...
0: Marvelous, thank you, Jerry. And what then, first prompted your interest in things that you have made prominent, like typology and the central emphasis and things like covenant and those concerns?
1: Well, you know, I um, I started writing books 30 years ago. Uh, my first book was my, uh, a revision of my dissertation on Jonathan Edwards. And I just wanted to communicate what I thought was the priceless and unique Public theology of Jonathan Edwards, who is widely regarded as the greatest theologian in the history of the Americas. I mean, nobody comes close to him. Um, typology you asked about, uh, I, I, you know, I was captivated as my students became captivated when I first read and when they when I introduced them to a little book of Edwards. Actually, it was a notebook that he kept throughout his life. Uh, called Images of Divine Things. Uh, Actually the full title was Images and Types of Divine Things. And it's published in the uh, volume 11 of the Yale edition, Yale University Press uh, of the works of Jonathan Edwards, which are uh, 27 volumes in hardcover and uh, 73 volumes including the ones online Um, and that little treatise, which was his notebook he kept throughout his life, talked about the types that God has put in all of reality all around us. Uh, And and when you start reading his description of types in nature and in history, in all the world around us and all dimensions of the world around us, um, I went, when I first read this and my students, when I introduce them to this little notebook, they go, gaga. I mean, it's, it's just a beautiful vision of the world, Christ in all of the world that Christians have largely lost in the 20th century, both Protestants and Catholics, but, but more so Protestants have lost it uh, and Anglicans um, Catholics are more familiar with this um, uh, because of the Catholic uh um, retention of natural theology, which which uh, many evangelicals and Protestants have lost. Now, covenant. Uh, you asked Mark. Um, you know, I I became a theological Christian. Now, I, I believe uh, I I believe I've been a Christian since I was baptized as a little Catholic baby in Pittsburgh, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been a self-consciously theological Christian um, since I was 18, I had a conversion experience through the Catholic charismatic renewal, by the way, um, outside of Chicago, um, but I became very quickly a reader of of, uh, of uh, Protestant theology and John Calvin and the whole Reformed tradition, which for whom covenant is absolutely central. So because of Calvin and then Jonathan Edwards who, who became for, for, for much of my theological life, my favorite theologian, um, covenant is absolutely essential. And then the last 20, 25 years, I've become a student of the theological meaning of Israel, a student of Israel really a student of the rabbis. Mm-hmm. And what does is, what should is, what does Israel mean for the world? What should Israel mean for Christians? These are the the questions I've been writing a few books about um, and a whole bunch of articles about. Uh, and, and of course for Jews, covenant is absolutely the center of everything, how we should understand the world. Uh, so, and one final thing, uh, um, I, I, I'm i writing now my eighth book on Jonathan Edwards and people often say, you know, why did you get interested in Edwards? And if they're a little bit older, I say, do you remember the movie that came out about 15 years ago called A Beautiful Mind? And, and Mark, I don't know if you remember that or saw mm-hmm. it. and. And and it was the cinematic uh, snapshot of the life of this famous mathematician at Princeton Mm -hmm. who did have a beautiful mind. He was eccentric in all sorts of ways as most beautiful minds are. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: But I was drawn to Edwards as hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people are being drawn to Edwards uh, in the last 50, 60 years because of the beauty of his mind. He was a beautiful mind, far more than just a hellfire and damnation preacher, which is principally how he's known over here in the States. Mm-hmm. And he was a hellfire and damnation preacher, but he was far more than just that. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was this great, great mind who Martin Marty, who is not reformed. He was a great Lutheran uh, church historian, said over and over again, if you look in the history of American religion, there is no one who combined the intellect with the Christian heart as passionately and as systematically as Jonathan Edwards. And so that's what drew has drawn me to Edwards. yeah. over the years.
0: Brilliant. And uh, your work and Dr. Michael McClayman have really helped me to appreciate Edwards too. So I'm grateful for that. I want to ask you then next, Jerry, about um, maybe more in your personal life. Has there been any other persons who've been especially inspirational for you or influential? Would you like to tell us about it?
1: Well, I'll start with a Jesuit scholastic, now dead, named John G. McSherry who was my English teacher as a 13-year-old boy at Regis High School, Catholic, this Jesuit high school in New York City. And he uh, pulled me out of class after I'd written something and he said, you're a writer. And we became very close over the years and and remained so until his death. Uh, He was a big influence on me, always encouraged my writing. He read a few of my early books. then Richard John Newhouse, whom I got to know personally and became sort of a mentor to me, the founding editor of First Things, which I think is the best journal on religion and public life mm-hmm. in English, and I recommend it to all of your listeners and all of your um, viewers. Um, so Richard Newhouse and, and his beautiful mind. Uh, I love the fact that he, he's been so influential and he never got a PhD. I think PhDs are overrated. <laughs> <laughs> um, Robert Benny, the, the Lutheran ethicist. He had the courage to hire me 30, 37 or so 36 years ago as a young professor. Um, uh, it was polit- It was politically incorrect for him to hire me because the feminists at Roanoke College were telling him, you cannot hire another white male. The Religion and Philosophy Department already is full of white males and you cannot hire another one. And Bob Benny had, and he still does have, uh, he's still active at 83, courage. He had a spine.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he said, I'm gonna hire the best best candidate. Uh, I mean, not that I was Necessarily the best candidate, but it was his choice to hire a white male, uh, uh, even though there was great political pressure on him not to. But he's been a great influence on me. Uh, We've been intellectual soulmates for almost 40 years now. And then my wife, Jean. Um, I mean, I couldn't have done anything in my career without Jean. Uh, She helped me raise three boys, and we now have 12 grandchildren, which we're so grateful for. Six boys and six girls. (laughs) <laughs> and um uh, gene has always been an inspiration gene actually often gives me ideas when i'm stumped and i'm not sure where to go i run it by her and often she has this idea i hadn't thought of uh such as how to write israel matters uh, so the, these are some of the influences on in my life
0: yeah wonderful thank you for sharing there jerry um I'd love to move on now to some of your work and how these themes have played out. So we mentioned typology before. In everyday glory, the revelation of God and all of reality, you look more at this theme and um, how we're to know and speak about God's relation to the word typologically. What are some of the ways then that you have discerned that God reveals himself through his creation and um, that you cover in this book, especially those things that have been neglected, as you say?
1: Well, uh, yeah, um, natural theology, which means the way or or, uh, it means theological reflection on God's revelation in nature, what's called natural revelation as opposed to special revelation. You know, natural revelation is also called general revelation, how God has revealed himself in nature out there and also nature in here in the human conscience, Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans Mm 2, Paul talks about nature out there in Romans 1 and of course the Old Testament, Psalm 19 is a perfect perfect example, Uh, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork, so the whole Christian tradition has believed in natural theology, uh, well, God's natural revelation, his revelation of himself through nature and the legitimate enterprise of natural theology, thinking about uh, reasoning about what God has told us through nature. Uh, you know, the Christian tradition for 1900 years believed firmly in that and wrote extensively about it. But Karl Barth, the Swiss Reformed theologian of the 20th century, pr- probably the most influential theologian of the 20th century, on both Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. Um, denied natural revelation. And as a result, most Protestant theologians um, tended to regard very negatively all of the 20th century and even continuing now into the 21st century, a lot of your Protestant theologians reformed, especially, uh, uh, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Lutheran uh, theologians, especially, I, you know, I taught at a Lutheran college for 26 years and I became very familiar with Lutheran theology, um, deny the legitimacy, the theological legitimacy of, nat- of natural theology. So so a natural theology, which, uh, which everyday glory is sort of a layman's guide to um, is a repristination, uh, a re- trying to revive a natural theology. Now, Alistair McGrath, who's a fellow Irishman. Uh, uh, he's an acquaintance of mine of, of you know, casual friend. I don't know him real well, but but we've had some interaction. Um, he's done some great work in the last 15 years to revive a properly Christian natural theology. So one area, for example, that, that Edwards would say and that I write about in everyday glory is science. Uh, now, now let me just tell you, Mark, what the uh, chapters are in Everyday Glory, and here's 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 the book. Uh, um, I love, by the way, the painting on the cover. Me too. It, it uh, it's a Van Gogh. It's a beautiful Van Gogh painting, and uh, so I've got chapters in here on how God's glory is manifest in every dimension, in, in many many. Um, dimensions of reality, and I, I, I would say in every dimension, but of course I can't write about every, every, every dimension, but I do have separate chapters on nature, science, law, history, chapter on animals, chapter on sex, chapter on sports, chapter on the world religions. Um, so one area is science that many people ask about. So, you know, Jerry, you um, where do we see God's glory in science? Well, actually, it's pretty easy to see God's glory in science. Uh, And and one, one area that I did not know about very much at all before I did my research for that chapter is that cosmologists and physicists talk about the beauty in the hidden structures of the universe. Now, some of these scientists are Christians, but many are not. Some are deists, some are agnostics, and yet there are so many of the physicists and cosmologists who see beauty in the hidden structures of the universe. Uh, in the the deep structures, as they put it, of harmony and symmetry, uh, they say, look, it's not logical that deep structures of the cosmos would have all this beauty uh the deeper we go the more beauty we see they say and if if there were no god if this universe uh has arisen from random uh uh events and random structures it's not logical that and if if, if this universe was not created by, by an intelligent mind, then it's not logical that you'd see all this beauty everywhere. Frank Wilsick um, is a physicist here in the States. He, he's associated with Harvard. Well, he teaches at Harvard. Um, And he talks about the, and, and he's not a traditional believer. I mean, he was raised, I think as a Catholic, but he's, is departed from traditional Catholicism. But nevertheless, he writes as a Harvard physicist, uh, he writes about the beauty of nature's deep design. He says, it's as strange as its strangeness is beautiful. Nobel laureate Eugene Wigner, who is at the University of Chicago, where where I did my undergraduate degree, um, says it really is bizarre that Mathematics uh, can tell us all sorts of things about nature. This is unreasonable. That mathematics that you could say comes out of the human mind, or at least the human mind is able to capture and grasp and access uh, mathematics, if you think that mathematics is an objective reality outside the mind. But Wigner says, look, it is unreasonable, and that's, the, and that's his word. It's unreasonable that mathematics should be able to capture nature and the laws of nature, uh, the way nature works uh, out there. If there's no such thing as a creator, if there's no such thing as a mastermind of the creator of the cosmos, it's unreasonable that there should be this perfect harmony between the mathematics that, that we can see in our minds and nature out there. Um, Pythagoras first wrote thousands of years ago uh, um, or first, uh, first observed uh, musical that that when that that when musical tones are in harmony, they use frequencies that are in the ratios that uh that are the ratios of small whole numbers. And he called them the music of the spheres. Now, now Pythagoras saw that thousands of years ago. Kepler, uh, and you spoke about this Kepler program uh, a few minutes ago. Kepler, you know, the great 17th century physicist talked about the heavenly harmony uh, between math and nature. So um, Wilsack himself, you know, to get back to the Harvard physicist, he says, atoms are tiny musical instruments. In their interplay of light, they produce the mathematical music of the spheres that surpasses the visions of Pythagoras. So here you've got these not particularly religious physicists and cosmologists who see a beauty in the deepest structures of the universe that if, if there were no God really don't make sense.
0: Yep. Marvelous. Thank you, Jerry. And then um, I think your work is also very important in blowing apart some of our secular sacred distinctions and, um, it comes across even with things like sports, which you look at in the book, which um, they're often considered merely secular or else even an alternative religion or an alternative liturgy. But you show that they can, things like sports can participate in Christ as the antitype. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that works out?
1: Yeah. Uh, now, I say yeah. in the book, in my chapter on sports, that sports are the hardest, the most difficult uh, dimension of life to Say these are at, these are actually um, divine images that God has put there, but there certainly are correspondences between the world of sports and the um, you could say the world of theology. Uh, and let me give you an example, uh, Mark. Um, theologians will say, and Scripture I think suggests that just as In sports, we humans play with absolute seriousness much of the time, and yet it's play. So too, God plays with absolute seriousness. Proverbs tells us in chapter eight, verse 30, uh, that the wisdom of God during the creation was daily God's delight playing or sporting and that's how the Hebrew can be translated there before him at all times. Now, uh, there was a great early, well, first half of the 20th century Roman Catholic theologian Romano Gardini who by the way was a huge influence on uh, Joseph Ratzinger who became Pope Benedict the 16th. And Gardini observed, that in that Proverbs eight passage, that the son of God is playing before the father. Um, and this play, Gardini observes, is characteristic of the highest beings in creation. The most, stunning, the most stunning examples of which are the flaming cherubim of Ezekiel one, who move this way and that way for no Apparent reason for no human purpose except to simply follow the spirit for the glory of God. In this way, Gardini says they become a living song before God. Now, now Gardini says we can see this quality of playing before God best in, in, in the creativity of an artist or the play of a child. Neither the artist nor the child playing has a purpose for what he or she is doing, other than simply the sheer joy of doing it. You know, you know. You ask a kid, and I've got twelve grandkids. And I ask my grandchild, so why are you cutting up that blue paper? Like my granddaughter was yesterday, and she just say, "I don't know. It's fun." Um, there, you know. I would say they are expressing, the child and the artist are expressing what they, what they were created by God to, to be and to do. This is the joy that you saw in the Olympic runner named Eric Little in the movie, Chariots of Fire. He famously said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. So the artist the child and little, the Olympic runner, who by the way, became a missionary in China and died uh, in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp. Um, They suggest that the joy is in the doing, the joy is in the play, which has no special purpose outside the play. The play is the thing, as Shakespeare said, and nothing else matters. And, you know, sports, uh is like that the play is a thing it, it's a whole world just in the play and what's going on in the outside world really doesn't matter so that's one way in which even in sports we can see something of god's types and of course type comes from the greek word tupon which means example or symbol and it and it's become a major thing in the history of theology the types that god has put put in creation every aspect of creation including perhaps sports
0: yeah thank you jerry that's a uh, wonderful again and um you also look at marriage and men the relationships between men and women and um the typological insights we can garner there and you also helpfully contrast this with so-called same-sex marriage and show that things like that don't have this biblical support. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 famously uh, says that human marriage is a type of the love between Christ and his church. Um, Why is that? What, What does Paul mean? Well, the love between Christ and the church is, is, is the same as the love between Yahweh and Israel in the Old Testament. Um, and it's between two beings who are radically different. God who is, you know, the Trinitarian God, the, the God of Israel, whose son is Yeshua, the Mashiach, Messiah. Um, are radically different from from human beings. God is infinite, human beings are finite. God is all holy, Uh, human beings are thoroughly sinful as we in the 21st century uh, see so fully, you might say, today. And especially after the 20th century, the bloodiest century in history with more murder, murders of more hundreds of millions of people than in any other, than all the previous centuries put together. Uh, And yet God perfectly um, holy loves this unholy people. Um, Radical difference. And the union of Christ and the church, Paul says, um, is uh, seen in the union of a man and a woman, radically different And and if I tell my, I've told my students for for decades, if you don't think men and women are different, then you've never lived with someone of the opposite sex. You're probably not married. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every married couple will tell me, oh, Father Jerry, you don't understand. We are so different. And I say, I thoroughly understand. (laughs) My wife and I are radically different. Every man and woman is radically different. Men and women are fundamentally different. But see, that's that's the beauty of it. And it comes out of this union of difference that there is love and that love is fruitful. It produces fruit. And in human sexuality marriage, it produces this whole civilization called a little baby. And I say a civilization because as C.S. Lewis put it, uh, human civilizations come and go and, and they will never survive. But only human beings and angels live forever. So it's out of this union of radical difference in love that uh, there's fruit produced of another human being. And, uh, and and you see this radical difference in the Trinity. The father is radically different from the son, particularly the son as known in history in the incarnation because the son takes on human nature, which is finite, radically different from infinite divinity. Uh, but in gay marriage, there isn't this difference. There is not the radical difference. When a man marries a man, there is not the radical difference. And it's no wonder that you cannot have the production of a child. Uh, You know, every child even produced through a gay marriage is produced only because of a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. That, 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 That gay marriage or union of two men or two women has to use Products of a man and a woman um, in order to through artificial semination or surrogacy to come up with their own child, that child was produced all ultimately by sexual difference, not sexual sameness. So these are some of the reasons um, why you can even see through types why gay marriage just does not reflect God.
0: Oh, yeah, excellent. Thank you, Jerry. And I think um, there seems to be a greater awareness of this now. Uh, Fabrice Hage and people like that have written about the differences in sexuality and how that has theological import. And I believe Alistair Roberts, that's affiliated with Peter Lithart's um, Alistair
1: Roberts person. is great. Great. Yes. Too, isn't he? yes. Uh, <laughs> he's a good friend. Both both Peter and Alistair are, are good friends. And, and Alistair is on the verge of coming out with what's going to be a monumental book on men and women.
0: So then if we might look to um, Jonathan Edwards again, you've written so many books in Jonathan Edwards, Theology of Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards Confronts the Gods, Seeing God, Jonathan Edwards and Spiritual Sermon, amongst others. So you analyze many different themes in Edwards, um, aesthetics, metaphysics, typology, the history of redemption, revival, virtue, all these wonderful things. How does he help us then to appreciate the good the true and the beautiful in ways that many of us miss as we say
1: yeah um patrick sherry who i believe must be irish uh published a seminal book about 30 years ago titled spirit and beauty uh an introduction to theological aesthetics And it was a survey of the history of theological aesthetics. And he said, when you look at the history of Christian thought over 2000 years and look at the greatest writers about beauty there really are only three names. There's Augustine, uh, Balthazar, the Swiss Catholic theologian in the 20th century and Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. And he said of the three, the one for whom beauty was most central to his vision of God was Jonathan Edwards, even more than Augustine and Balthazar. And that's Mark really what makes Edwards stand out in the history of Christian thought. And that's by the way, I think why he's becoming more and more attractive to Catholic theologians and Eastern Orthodox theologians as he becomes known beyond the Americas. Um, so Edwards wore many hats as you were suggesting. He's, uh, I think he's helpful to us for metaphysics today. Um, for ethics, his nature of true virtue is unparalleled. Uh, for understanding, a theological understanding of history, his history of, of the work of redemption is unique. And, um, but particularly aesthetics. And, 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 you know, we think of the three transcendentals, the three platonic transcendentals, uh, uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful, which also are the three Christian transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And I think in the 21st century, Mark, uh, as I go around the world and I've, I've lectured in six continents, um, and taught uh, in, you know, on all those continents. Um, I think the one transcendental that is most fruitful today is beauty. Um, you know, a lot of young people, they, they've heard so many claims to truth and goodness and they're just confused and, and, and they really don't know what to think but there's something about beauty that draws the 21st century in ways that truth and goodness unfortunately do not. And so Edwards, I think is a perfect theologian for the 21st century when there's so much confusion um, and beauty has a way of attracting the mind in ways that even truth and goodness cannot these days.
0: Yeah, wonderful. I think Bishop Byron, the Catholic bishop, says something similar in his approach to evangelism yes. is amazing. And he has produced this beautiful new leather-bound Bible, even simple things like that, I think, are so important. Um, and your works, Jonathan yes. Edwards' works, helps by revealing the, the beauty and the, the creation God has made and everything. And um, I want to ask you a bit more about that um, ecumenical quality that you mentioned about Edwards. How? What are some of the ways he might serve as a bridge then between the, say, the Orthodox and Catholics and Anglicans and so on in the West and um, even between conservative and liberals, they're kind of shade, yeah. you know,
1: now. Yeah. Michael and McClyman and I have made this case. We published a giant, And Edwards called The Theology of Jonathan Edwards uh, with Oxford University Press back in 2013 and Mark you just referred to it and the last chapter is where we make the case that Edwards is a theological bridge particularly in the 21st century um, between these different groups of Christians so first of all between east and west um, you know the east thinks of theology as Prayer and as piety, far more than the West does. We here in the West tend to think of theology as something that those pointy heads do (laughs) at graduate schools and is sort of boring for us in the pews. But the East thinks of theology as Jonathan Edwards did, um, as the outgrowth of deep prayer and piety. And prayerful, uh, obedient reflection on on Scripture. Um, so, it's no wonder that Edwards is becoming attracted to, to to some Eastern Orthodox. Uh, he's also, I think, you know, uh, uh, Michael and I um, um, believe. Can be a bridge, and, and he already is proving to be a bridge between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, you know, the issue that has separated uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants for the last 500 years since the Reformation, and Mark, you're probably particularly attuned to this in Ireland, where Catholics and Protestants is still a big issue, is justification. Uh, Protestants following Martin Luther said this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls but Edwards and I've written about this his doctrine of justification is remarkably similar to that of Thomas Aquinas that is uh you know Aquinas said faith is formed by love Luther wrote against that but Edwards said yeah Uh, On this Jonathan Edwards agreed far more with Thomas than than with Martin. Faith is formed by love. Uh, Faith, uh, love is the expression of faith. Love is necessary for true faith. All these things Edwards said and Thomas Aquinas um, uh, would agree and Thomists would agree. Uh, I think that Edwards and my friend and colleague, Michael McClymon, totally agrees, uh, can also be a bridge between conservative Christians and liberal Christians. You know, it's interesting. um, Jonathan Edwards is the only major theologian taken seriously and read in course texts at both Wheaton College and Harvard Divinity School. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He has this strange appeal because of his high regard for rationality, which some evangelicals don't have, and fundamentalists often do not have, and also his learning from the Enlightenment. Now, he was a great critic of the Enlightenment, but he also learned from the Enlightenment. He was a child of the Enlightenment who was also extremely critical of the Enlightenment, and, and that's a, you know, particularly in this post-Enlightenment, uh, even post-liberal theological climate. Uh, many Christian liberals appreciate this about Edwards and can resonate with much of, with much of what Edwards uh, wrote. Uh, and finally, charismatics and non-charismatics. Now more and more, the Christian world is divided between the global North and the global South. And the global South is dominated by charismatics and Pentecostals, uh, Africa is is the future Christian continent. There in 20, 30, 40 years, there, there, there will be more Christians in Africa than on any other continent. And and it, it may well be the case today. Uh, and most of them are Pentecostals, uh, Pentecostal Catholics, Pentecostal Anglicans or you know, charismatic Anglicans and uh, charismatically influenced Baptists and and African religionists, Uh, uh, you know, the African churches that are are unique and really cannot be described as either Protestant or Catholic, but but simply this this new kind of Christian called African. Uh, And and Mark, I know you're about to marry an African and you probably know uh, as much or more about this than uh, most of your listeners. Now Edwards was a cessationist uh, formally, which means he believed the charismatic gifts of the Holy spirit ceased with the death of the apostles and the closure of the new Testament. But Edwards also, um, was a keen student of the history of the work of the Holy spirit. And he, uh, taught formally that we should judge, um, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, not a priori, but ex post facto. That is, look at what actually happens. And, and you know, he wrote more about revivals than anyone else in the history of Christian thought, more serious theological work. He is the theologian in the last 2000 years, Catholic or Protestant or Eastern Orthodox or Pentecostal, who, who wrote more about the theology of revival than anyone else, and Mike McCliman and I think that if Edwards, since his uh, rule for thinking about charismatic experience was was, um, to judge what's on the ground and what the Holy Spirit is doing on the ground, rather than making up a priori rules, God can do this and he can't do that. uh, um, Edwards might indeed look at the 20th century history of Pentecostalism and say, "Whoa! look at all the fruit that is produced. Look at all the real live Christians who take the Bible as the word of God and try to live lives of holiness. And for Edwards, those were two of the signs of the work, the principal signs of, of the work of God through his Holy Spirit. So there too, I think that Edwards, uh, particularly in his serious theological works, doing theology revival, uh, that Edwards can be a bridge between charismatics and non-charismatics, and because he was a leading reform theologian, and much of the reform tradition is anti-charismatic and anti-Pentecostal, uh, so here, here you got this great reform theologian, great in terms of world historical significance, um, who is, who is also the greatest theologian of revival. Go figure.
0: Yeah, marvelous. Thank you, Jay. And um, you mentioned there the Enlightenment. I think you also uh, illuminate some other interesting areas. So it's long been thought that his polemics were aimed against Arminianism. But I think that you show that his main target was a larger one and more influential, namely deism. Why then to his mind was deism the logical conclusion of um, schemes of divinity that appropriated the different Enlightenment beliefs?
1: Yeah, and, and that's one of the arguments that, that, that I make and, and Mike and I make in, in our big book, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards, that his principle um, that, that he taught that, that the real enemy of the church is, is deism, even more than atheism and far more than Arminianism. Now, of course, your Methodist listeners are not going to like this because <laughs> he thought that Arminianism will, will eventually lead to deism. And he may or may not have been right about that. But anyway, deism, he said, is the, principal, en- the uh, principal enemy of the church. And I think we, we can see this in the 21st century because what um, rather than deism growing, all kinds of false religions are growing around the world. The world is becoming more and more religious, not less religious. Uh, But of course, um, that doesn't mean all religions are good. Many religions are not good. And particularly this, um, uh, you know, the the various versions of the new age that are very popular around the world today, particularly in the global North, Uh, spiritism, which is very popular in the global South, Uh, witchcraft is still a very big thing in the global South. Uh, um, And, uh, and in the global North, unfortunately, there's a brand new religion. And, you know, we can talk about that called anti racism, which has taken on a religious quality. And it's, uh, in my view, it's profoundly racist. And it's also profoundly religious. Um, So, So Edwards would say deism which is also profoundly religious is the real enemy. Um, uh, And it's not atheistic. It believes in God and talks about God talks about uh, God in the world despite the the common myth about deism that God is totally removed from the world. Uh, That's not true historically. And I argue that in uh, Jonathan Edwards confronts the gods that you know, many of your American deists, Benjamin Franklin, um, John Adams to some degree, although he was also reformed. Uh, but Benjamin Franklin is a great example. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was very much a deist, far more deist than he was Christian. Uh, they both believed that God was intervening in the American Revolution on America's behalf. So a deism does not mean a God totally Removed from the world and refusing to intervene. No, he intervenes selectively, um, and and today, you know, as I said, in in this profoundly religious century, uh, um, um, Deism is perhaps a very um, Linked with Gnosticism. It is a kind of Gnosticism. And in anti racism today, it's very much, you know, a critical race theory is very much a Gnostic way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And Edwards would say the problem with deism and the reason why it's so profoundly anti Christian is because oh, uh, although God does intervene occasionally, according to deists, nevertheless, In in deist metaphysics, God is one more thing out there. God is one more entity out there alongside all sorts of other entities. So God is a thing, God's an idea, God's even a being who can be captured by the human mind. And that's absolutely antithetical to historic Christian metaphysics and Edwards's metaphysics. Which is that, no, God is uh, not only transcendent all over the world and so separate from the world, but he's also immanent, remains in the world. In, uh, as Paul told the Athenian philosophers, in God, we live and move and have our being. So God is not a thing out there alongside other things. He's not a being alongside other beings. He is being itself as Edwards wrote and and as Thomas Aquinas wrote. So that's the profound difference metaphysically between deism and and orthodoxy. And that's why um, deism in this profoundly religious world of the 21st century uh, is so antithetical to uh, um, the Christian vision
0: regarding universalism which has become so popular right. you show that that is um not biblical can you tell us a bit about that and as you said michael mccleman has written a wonderful book of it that two volumes about that and would yes. impressed me as well
1: yeah you know um mark i tell folks i preach and i teach that there are two major heresies today in the church in the 21st century there's the heresy against the doctrine of creation that's the heresy concerning marriage and sexuality, gay marriage. Uh, uh, it's against the doctrine of creation that God created the male and female and marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the great heresy today against the doctrine of creation. And then there's the great heresy today against the doctrine of redemption. And that's the doctrine and that's the new heresy of universalism. I mean, it's, it's new and old. It goes all the way back to, to origin and the Gnostics as Michael McCliman has brilliantly shown in the two volume work that you just mentioned, The Devil's Redemption, which I encourage all of your listeners who wanna be serious theological students, they must get that. It's pricey, but it's worth it. It's the kind of book you wanna have on your shelf the rest of your life to, to refer to. And what Michael shows uh, conclusively, is that universalism cannot be defended exegetically? I mean, Scripture is very clear. It clear, is clearly against it. It cannot be defended historically. Most of the church, for most of its history, well, for all of its history, has condemned it. Um, and it cannot be defended systematic, you know, in, in terms of systematic theology because as Michael shows that once you accept universalism that everyone eventually will be saved, there is no eternal hell. That belief corrodes every single other Orthodox dogma. It's inevitable. Um, And so, um, and you know, Ed, Ed Edwards is often criticized for being a hellfire and damnation preacher. Oh, he was just obsessed with hell. Now actually, um, Edwards was obsessed with God's beauty, not his judgment, but he did believe in God's judgment. He did believe in God's holiness. And I would say his teachings on hell, particularly for the 21st century, are part of Edwards's glory. And we need to recover a lot of that because he had a vision of God's holiness that much of the church today lacks and desperately needs, especially amidst this uh, major heresy against the doctrine of creation. So many, too, too many Christians, including evangelical theologians and Catholic theologians are buying in to both universalism and also gay marriage because they do not have a, a properly biblical view of God's holiness, which Edwards had from from, from the very beginning of his Christian life and his theological writing.
0: Yeah, marvelous. Um, thank you for that now, Jerry. And I think that brings us back to the right um, framework to actually approach the issue, which a lot of people don't have, unfortunately. And um, I wanna then move on to another wonderful book that you've written or you've edited, which is about race and covenant, recovering the religious roots for American reconciliation, which I think speaks to some of those points that we just mentioned. Uh, you mentioned this kind of Gnostic quality. Forty Bauchem has called it an ethnic Gnosticism as well. I think that's a very helpful um, way of understanding. I think Joshua Mitchell has written some really interesting stuff too. So the USA and um, probably now the world is consumed with questions regarding this kind of concept of race and the the legacy of slavery in America, for example, the nature of um, social justice. Where are Christians really then to turn to receive a more biblical model than this dominant model of critical theory that you talk about, or uh, vice versa, I guess, um, this conservative complacency that many people have?
1: Well, where are Christians to turn? Good question, because they're being deluged with uh, false messages In the media and unfortunately in a lot of churches too that have become woke that have bought into this false religion this false gospel of anti-racism um well they should turn to um black thinkers who reject all this like Vodi Bauckham. he's got a new book coming out it's not out yet i don't think and i forget the title but but he's a brilliant black theologian, uh, Vodibacham V O D D I E and Bacham B A U C H A M. He's um, he's from Zambia and he goes back and forth between Zambia and the states. He's he's uh, he's wonderful to listen to. He's a great preacher and uh, teacher. Um, and you know they should go to uh, um, uh, black thinkers. Who, aren't, who don't uh, speak uh, necessarily from a Christian point of view, like Thomas Sowell, although he is a Christian. I mean, he's, he's been a brilliant economist and, and, and uh, social commentator for 60, 70 years. I mean, he's in his 90s now. Mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell, uh, uh, also now still Shelby Steele, who just put out a, a great uh, movie uh, before the election, and he's got, and I believe Shelby Steele's got a new book out um, on this false religion of anti-racism. Now, now, uh, he doesn't write uh, theologically, but you know, and I don't want to be self-serving, and I and I, and I tell my listeners I, I don't get a penny of royalties from this book, but I promote the book Race and Covenant because I believe in it, um, and it's the only thing out there that. Um, that that collects the Christian uh, um, different voices coming from the same basic Christian vision on this question of race today uh, uh, it was just published in October uh, and actually wasn't released until November um, Josh Mitchell uh, by the way has a chapter in here the majority of the contributors to this are black uh, eight of the 15 are black are, are black. We've got two wonderful uh, Jewish scholars at the beginning, uh, rabbis and, and scholars on, uh, on what the Old Testament has to say about race and um, what, what the Holocaust should tell us about race. Um, so, um, you know, two of my favorite chapters in here, uh, Mark, uh, if you're interested, are both by black scholars, Christians, both speak from an explicitly biblical and th- Christian theological point of view. Carol Swain and Derek Green. Uh, um, Carol is a recently retired Vanderbilt Law School professor, public policy and law, um, who grew up in grinding poverty in rural Virginia and became the youngest tenured professor in the history of Princeton before she went to Vanderbilt. Derek Green is a young black political scientist. Um, uh, And he writes about the black churches and he says too many of the black churches uh, after being the moral leaders of America in the 1960s civil rights movement, they yielded pride of place um, from a gospel of grace to the new popularity of the black power movement and started to preach unfortunately a gospel of race to replace the gospel of grace. And he doesn't just make that claim, he proves it in this chapter. And he finishes the chapter by saying, and this is why I really recommend it to your listeners, um, that the black church in America can restore its um, moral leadership of the whole country by going back to the gospel of forgiveness and grace and recognizing that while there still is racism, uh, the claims of critical race theory that America is systemically racist
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, and that people are stuck. And if you have a white skin, you're necessarily racist. That none of this, um, uh, um, and that whites need to forever atone and Blacks should never finally forgive, that none of this is biblical. Uh, Carol Swain, to get back to the charge that America is systemically racist, she just flatly denies it. and says America is still the land of opportunity, particularly for people of color, for goodness sakes. Um, in the last half century, for the last half century, I've grown up in the last, I mean, I've uh, I've been around longer than a half century. And I was in high school when the civil rights movement was going on and I, and I remember the affirmative action laws that were passed by Congress and made part of and have now affected every sector of America in the last 50 years where people of color are preferred. That's racial preference. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for 50 years in this country and every sector of, of, of the United States, higher education, um, business, government, law. Um, any um, and every kind of racism is illegal in this country and has been for 50 years and often is prosecuted. So the claim, and, so, and what Carol Swain Mark says is this is very damaging to blacks, to claim, especially to young blacks, particularly young blacks in the inner city who are told by critical race theory and now by the whole anti-racism movement that is just dominating the media and every and now with Joe Biden as president, the government he's officially endorsed all this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Young blacks are being told that the the American system is rigged against you. And Carol Swain says, "What matters is what we believe about our possibilities." And if we and if a young black believes, takes this in, which is what he's being told, that the system is rigged against him, he's not gonna make the effort that he ought to make to pull himself up and get out of the inner city, take advantage of the educational opportunities to him. He's gonna say, well, it's no use. America's systemically racist. The whole system is rigged against me. And Carol Swain says, that's child abuse that's the worst thing we can possibly do, do to a young black. She said, I was a young black woman, one of 12 kids, uh, no indoor plumbing, oftentimes no shoes, we went around barefoot. Um, my, my, uh, my father left the home. My alcoholic mother was living with an abusive stepfather. Um, but America was the land of opportunity for me. It was because of America, the systemic anti-racism in this country that I got to where I was and, and where am I where, 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 where I am today. What the anti-racism religion and what critical race theory does is, is it's actually demeaning to blacks because it it strips them of agency. It, it tells them you can't do it. All the other ethnic groups have done it, but you can't, not unless government helps you. And Carol and Derek both say, "Hey, you know, government's been doing all sorts of things for 50 years, and where has it gotten uh, the black underclass?" Now, the other mistake that that Derek and Carol and the other authors in the book uh, point to, that is. Often made by particularly whites is we think now and 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 maybe Irishmen and Irish um, women looking at the news think, gee, the average American black must be poor and you know living in the inner city, and all, you know the black contributors to this book say, stop thinking like that. That's that's only twenty percent of the american black community eight eight you know 80% are middle class and upper middle class for goodness sakes there 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 are great numerous 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 black successors and uh success stories in every segment of american society stop thinking of blacks as necessarily poor and in the inner city mm-hmm. uh that 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 too is demeaning to us
0: yeah
1: yeah and that- and one more thing. Uh, the other favorite chapter I've got here is by Alveda King. Mm-hmm. She's the nephew of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, her house was bombed. I mean, her father was Martin's brother and her house was bombed too uh, by the race, you know, racist whites in the 1960s. And her, her chapter is on abortion. And, and she says, if, you know, if we wanna talk about violence the greatest violence done to blacks is abortion. And it's particularly racist because Planned Parenthood which our government unfortunately funds, targets its uh, murder clinics in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. They, are, they, are, they wanna kill blacks. Let's talk about that she says. Talk about racism and they they abort black babies disproportionately black babies account for more than one-third uh e- even higher percentage of all abortions in america and yet blacks are only 12 13 of the population
0: yeah it's very distressing and um it shows the remarkable, I guess, mythic power, and as you say, religious power of the new narrative to deflect all this attention away from those real, like, devastating issues that are happening out there. I think also your work um, in terms of the frame is a lot more helpful, but by pointing out that those figures you, were re-centering on their Christian identity, and I think that's something important rather than um, the skin color. It's it, the, the virtue, as we say, is in how we react in relation to Christ and what he's um, offering us through grace, not the, the skin color, is we mentioned, like Bauckham before, talks about that Gnostic idea that you're virtuous because of your skin color, which is more, I guess, Hegelian or Marxist or in different forms and so on. But your work, I think, um, and all this selection of essays is excellent also because you show that um, God has dealt with um, nations as nations and actually enters into closer relations with societies that claim him as Lord rather than focusing on this idea of whiteness, the social construct of race that seeks to essentialize those differences. Can you tell us a bit more about that um, national covenant and how that's played out in scripture and history and even in contemporary American society?
1: Yeah. You know, most Christians, Mark, for most Of Christians for the last 2000 years have have believed in the national covenant without knowing that term that is that's the idea as you just mentioned briefly that God deals with whole nations and not just with individuals now in this country the United States we've lost that idea since the Vietnam War because the Vietnam War um, uh, put American government un- under suspicion of having this perverse plan to export American culture to all the world. You know, um, perfect example Southeast Asia. Uh, and American intellectuals turned against that and they thought that any idea that God has a special covenant uh, with America is necessarily idolatrous. Um, and will just exalt America in, in, in a way that will uh, do damage to other countries. And it's just an example of gross national hubris, pride. But actually the national covenant idea is the idea that um, God will judge every nation and particularly those that claim him as America has and as Ireland you know, certainly has and that God will deal with every nation for its sins. Uh, now this is, um, I point out in my introduction to, the, to uh, race and covenant that Augustine taught this, uh, Eusebius taught this, uh, Timus Aquinas assumed it. Um, Christians generally have believed in it. Uh, I'm sure you know there, there, there are special things about Ireland Um, beautiful things about Ireland. I'm, I'm 100% Irish and I, and I love the country and the people of Ireland. Uh, although I don't love what's happened, what, what, what Ireland has done with its Christian tradition in the last 10 years or so. Um, but, um, you know, when you look at American history, uh, its greatest thinkers have always believed in the national covenant, not, um, Um, Abraham Lincoln, for example, who's widely considered the greatest of all the American presidents. He, in his second inaugural address and his Thanksgiving addresses, he made it very clear that America is under judgment, um, that God is dealing with us as a nation, not just as individuals. In in fact, the civil war is God's judgment on our country. He said both North and South for slavery. You know, um, 600,000 Americans gave their lives in the Civil War and a few million more gave their limbs. They were maimed by the Civil War. Uh, Not only for slavery, but largely for slavery to put an end to slavery. Um, And Frederick Douglass, who was the most brilliant of social prophets of the 19th century, former slave, escape from slavery. Uh, he, you know, a recent critical biography by David Blight was published a wonderful biography, which I highly recommend. And Blight says that the theme of Douglass's theology was the national covenant that God deals with with nations as in the old Testament with America. Um, and Frederick Douglass wrote and preached, I mean, he was a tremendous speaker when, when, when all over the United States speaking constantly, that, that the American uh, Civil War was God's judgment on America. He agreed with Lincoln and that, um, that America needed to atone for slavery and, and the Civil War was the beginning of that atonement and, and America had gone into exile just as God sent ancient Israel in, into exile twice for its betrayal of the covenant, so too America was sent into exile because, uh, through through um, um, beginning with the Civil War, because of its betrayal of its covenant dedicated to the equality of every human being, right there in the Declaration of Independence, uh, that Thomas Jefferson, the slave owner pen the words, all men are created equal, which he had a terrible conscience about his whole life. But just, you know, and hypocrisy, and of course he was a hypocrite, but as, uh, as, as has famously been said, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. A hypocrisy is better than the absence of all virtuous ideals it's better to have the virtuous ideal and not live up to it than never to have the virtuous ideal to inspire others. Uh, And so yes, Thomas Jefferson, the founders in many respects were hypocrites, but at least they had this ideal that eventually the country lived up to by shedding blood to destroy slavery. And then um, uh, also shedding blood and passing laws to do away with Jim Crow in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So, and the founding, the, the civil rights leaders, mostly black, some Jews and some Christians like Richard Newhouse uh, also had this idea of the national covenant that, that, that the nation's under God and, and we stand in judgment. We are not in control of ourselves. We should not be thinking of ourselves as autonomous agents in control of ourselves, but, but, but we're under God's judgment. And as long as, so so we present this idea of national covenant as a thoroughly Christian idea historically and as an idea that will actually, rather than lead a country to idolatry, will actually do just the opposite. It will keep a country humble and recognize a transcendent Lord to whom it must submit, uh, which is what every nation in the world, including Ireland, perhaps,
0: needs more of yeah marvelous thank you jerry and um, i will ask you next about maybe international affairs if we may call it that and your work on world religions so you've written um, world religions An indispensable introduction god's rivals why god allowed different religions insights from the bible and the early church and the uh, baker pocket guide to world religions whatever christian needs to know I want to ask you what brought you then, I suppose you've touched on this earlier, to study um, other religions in such depth, and what can Christians, um, or what do they need to understand about some of the major religions of the world beyond our more superficial level?
1: I think just my own fascination. Uh, You know, I grew up in, um, I went to high school in New York City, rubbed shoulders with people from around the world. I I think it's the question that most uh, Christians are asking in the 20th and the late 20th and now 21st century. Um, Now that the world has become a global village and there are Muslims right down the street, not just halfway across the world, there are Buddhists right down the street, not just halfway across the world, that any Christian more and more is asking so What's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism? You know, most Christians today, think they know what Islam is all about. And because of the, you know, Islamic terrorism, that doesn't give a good name to Islam. Um, But Buddhism, you know, Taoism, Confucius, you know, who is he, what did he teach and, and Maybe I'm a Christian because my parents raised me in a church, but what if I'd been raised in um, uh, Saudi Arabia? You know, what if I'd been raised in Cambodia? Um, I'd probably be a Muslim. I'd probably be a Buddhist. So, why should I be a disciple of Jesus and not the Buddha? Uh, you know, these are the sorts of questions that more and more people around the world and Christians are asking, and Christians need answers to because. They they have Buddhist friends, they have Muslim friends, and what do they say, and what do they think about their Buddhist and Muslim friends, and and how do I know for sure that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? So, this is you know these are some of the questions, the fascination I've always had, and and as and I've always worked in churches, well for the last fifty years, um, and I know the Christians have. And so that's why I um, um, I did my PhD at, at the University of Iowa. And the PhD program then required that each of us take a minor. And my minor that I chose was Asian religions. And I'm so glad I did that because that got me started. In my career, uh, you know, I've had three or four different things I've done in my scholarly career. And one of the things is is being a, a theologian of the religions. Um, So that's what got me going, Mark.
0: Marvelous. And um, I guess you've already expressed how you have benefited from this in your own life. What are some of the other ways maybe that um, a greater understanding of these other religions and worldviews will help us to practice our Christian faith um, in a better way?
1: To help us understand Jesus better. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been studying and teaching the world religions for, 50, for, for 40 years. I've traveled all, all around the world uh, and I've got Muslim friends, I've got Buddhist friends, Taoist friends. Um, um, and the more I have traveled around the world and taught and studied the world religions, the more convinced I have become that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And you might say, well, why? How can you say that? Because um, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, and G.K. Chesterton, who both had a, who both wrote a lot about the world religions. In religions, you know, religions either focus on the universal or the particular. The, the, the religions of the Far East tend to focus more on the universal, the religions of the Near East, and, and all great world religions came from the East, uh, uh, either the Far East or the Near East. Um, the religions of the Near East focus more on the particular. Um, um, you could talk about the contrast, too, between God's absolute nature. His holiness, on the one hand, and His love on the other. Um, and and so, to get back to my point, the more I've studied and taught and gone around the world doing the world religions, the more I've seen that only in Christianity—that is, the the um, the religion of the God of Israel, whose Son is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and whose love for the Son is so perfect that it becomes a third person called the Holy Spirit, only in that religion in which the Son offers the perfect sacrifice, which is the, the antitype of all the types of the sacrifices of the world religions, including the Hebrew sacrifices in the Old Testament, so beautifully depicted in Leviticus, the most important book in the Bible. <laughs> the key to the whole new testament the one book that most christians think is most dispensable but the book that most rabbis say is the most essential Um, only christianity has this perfect balance between the universal and the particular and god's holiness and god's love Uh, so
0: yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that, Sherry. That's most most uh, um, enlightening. And last a uh, segment I'd like to look at is your work on Israel. So you've written Israel Matters, Why Christians Must Think Differently About the People and the Land and the New Christian Zionism, Fresh Perspectives in Israel and the Land. So you've spent decades investigating the meaning of Israel and Judaism, as you spoke about before, and these books address the perennially important issue of the relationship between Christianity and Judaism and the people and the land of Israel. How do you offer a third way then between the typical approaches in older works?
1: Yeah. uh, I I, I like your term, Mark, third way, uh, because it is. The first way is the, most common way, unfortunately of supersessionism and that the root word there of course is is supersede. Um, That's the idea that the Gentile church supersedes Jewish Israel in God's affections. Uh, This has been the dominant Christian view from the fourth century up through today for both Protestants and Catholics. Um, it's the idea that yes, God made an eternal covenant with Israel in the old Testament times, but that when the majority of Jews in the first century did not accept Jesus as Messiah, God, um, uh, he ended that special relationship with Jewish Israel and transferred that special relationship called the covenant to the Gentile church, which did accept Jesus as Messiah. Now that's supersessionism. And therefore today, the people, the Jewish people of Israel are no more important to God than than the um, nominal Catholics of the Republic of Ireland. And the land of Israel, that little strip of of territory on the Eastern edge of the Mediterranean in God's eyes today is no more important than that beautiful part of Ireland called Northern Ireland that I've never been to and I wanna go to. (laughs) But neither one is theologically important to, to, to God's work of redemption today. Uh, That's supersessionism. So it involves the people and the land. Uh, The Jewish people of Israel are not theologically significant anymore. And as long as they don't accept Jesus and neither is the land of Israel, theologically significant anymore uh, in God's plan of redemption. Um, That's supersessionism. That's the first way that's been the dominant way that Christians have understood uh, Israel, both the, both the people and the land since the fourth century. Now, the other, the second way, is uh, dispensationalism, which which started with an Irish priest. You know, you know, I- Ireland is so important. I uh, started with an Irish um, Anglican priest in the nineteenth century, who started the whole system called dispensationalism, which is based on the idea that God works in different ways in different eras of history or dispensations. And um, that God has Israel on one track and the Gentile church on the other. And those two tracks are absolutely parallel and they never cross each other. They never intersect. And it's also the idea that at the end of history or before the end of history, God's gonna take his uh, saints who are all or, or well, um, Gentile, except for those few Jews who have said who have accepted Jesus, and he's going to take them off planet Earth in what's called the rapture, and history is going to keep on moving forward without saved people anymore. Um, that's part of dispensationalism, and also. Um, um, Dispensationalists generally don't want to criticize the nation state of Israel at all. They totally defend it in every way. It can never do wrong. And so that's the second way of dispensationalism which has been very popular with uh, fundamentalists and a certain segment of the evangelical community in America primarily and evangelicals probably, well, I know in Northern Ireland, and in the rest of the world, and and great influence in the global south now, in uh, in Africa particularly. Now the third way is um, what's called the New Christian Zionism. That's a growing theological movement um, that was captured in an academic way in the book, *The New Christian Zionism*, which came out in 2016 from University Press. Uh, and 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 then I wrote a version of it for people in the pews, uh, you could say a dumbed down, much more accessible uh, view in Israel Matters. Although truth be told, many of my theologian friends much prefer Israel Matters to the new Christian Zionism because the new Christian Zionism is too long and too academic. (laughs) But this, this third way, the new Christian Zionism has nothing to do with dispensationalism does not rely on any uh, theological principles. Of, um, for instance, it does not adhere to the view, the old um, dispensationalist view that the church and Israel are on two separate parallel tracks, never intersecting. It is willing to be critical of Israel. It says that Christian Zionism is 2,000 years old. It didn't start in the 19th century with, with um, Darby, the Irish-Anglican priest slash theologian and it it rejects the uh so most of us new christian zionists are not dispensationalists um i'm not i never have been and 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 i read and i reject the idea of a rapture i don't think it's biblical um so so this is the third way that that i try to explain in israel matters
0: Yeah, marvelous. Thank you, Jerry. And um, then how does this new Christian Zionism approach the conflict that's currently going on between Israelis and Palestinians, and this modern Israeli government that you kind of um, touched upon there, and the prospects for peace in the Middle East, I guess, if that makes sense?
1: Well, um, it argues theologically not politically primarily it's mm-hmm. it is not a political argument it's it's a theological ar- argument although we do talk about politics we have to because that's almost the first question that's asked as you know for you it's the second question um, <laughs> uh, uh, everyone always says yeah but what about the palestinians the terrible ways that the israelis are exploiting the palestinians and oppressing them and um the best answer i can say is get israel matters and and read the um, the chapter that's titled what about the Palestinians? And uh, one thing I say there is there's no theological reason why Christians should not support peace efforts. A, Christians ought to be in support of peace. Christians ought to be against all oppression and tyranny. Um but i say, pragmatically, in 2021, and I guess it is 2021, it's hard to believe, but it is, mm-hmm. Christians ought to open their eyes and look and notice what's happening in the Middle East right now. Arab nations are supporting Israel and are making peace with Israel. Uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, recognizing the legitimacy of the state of Israel, which has never happened until now in what's called the Abraham Accords. And even if your viewers hate Donald Trump, even if they think that Donald Trump is the worst president ever and an evil man who incited this insurrection against the Capitol, nevertheless, something extraordinary happened in Middle Eastern relations uh, under his Uh, presidency and partially because of the efforts of Jared Kushner, his son-in-law. You've got Arabs now who are wanting to be allies with with Israel in all sorts of ways and open up uh, relations with Jerusalem uh, in all sorts of ways that they never did before. And one thing that these Arab nations like Saudi Arabia are recognizing and Egypt are recognizing is that the peace of the Middle East does not depend on what happens between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The peace of the world does not depend on what happens between the Israelis and the the Palestinians. And what they're also recognizing these Arab leaders in the Middle East is that the Palestinian uh, leadership is not trustworthy the Palestinian leadership is tyrannical itself. And that all the money that they have been giving, the millions, in, in, in fact, if you add it up, it's been billions of dollars, uh, have not gone to help the Palestinian people very much. Instead, they've gone to fill Swiss bank accounts that are under the false names, but the actual uh, uh, Palestinian leaders. And so you, the Palestinians are led by absolutely corrupt leadership who are not doing anything to help their people. In fact, what, what these Arab leaders are also recognizing and and they're not sure they like it, but it's a fact, the Palestinians who live in Israel and there are more than 2 million of them, they're full citizens and they regularly criticize openly and publicly the government of Israel and they go home that night, and they sleep peacefully in their beds. But the Palestinians who live on the West Bank, who are ruled by Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinians who live in Gaza, who are ruled by Palestinians, Mm -hmm. Hamas, they don't dare speak in public any sort of criticism or on social media, uh, any sort of criticism of their Palestinian leaders, or they'll get a knock on the door that night and they'll be hauled off to jail and tortured and sometimes killed, including their families. Uh, Arab leaders know this now. And and so, um, and you know, by the way, um, I did a walking tour of Galilee, the land of Jesus in 2009 with my photographer's son. And it wound up as a six page photo essay in Christianity today. And I, we, we walked, you know, we didn't sit on a bus and look down from bus windows. We walked and stayed at night with Palestinians some nights, uh, Arabs, and with Jews other nights. And I learned a heck of a lot. And here's one thing that, and my, my mission was to write an article about what the current residents of Galilee, the land of Jesus, think about Jesus. And I went out of my way to make sure I had lots of interviews with Palestinians, Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims. There are virtually no Palestinian atheists or agnostics to speak of. They're very religious people, but they're either Muslims or Christians. And I talked and I went out of my way to make sure I talked to um, so-called secular Jews and um, Messianic Jews and religious Jews. So I had lots of interviews. I wore my reporter's hat and I took a, and I took along simply a yellow legal pad and a pen to take notes. And you know what you find, and I'm sure, Marcus, you've found this, that that when you interview people and ask them questions, what do you think? People are usually thrilled to tell you. They don't hold back. They're honored that you would ask them, and I found that of all the Palestinians, all the Jews, they were thrilled when I said, "Well, what do you think about Jesus?" Uh, I don't want to, t- I, I, you know, I don't want to tell you what I think. I want to hear what you think, and everybody was, th- with the, you know, they love to talk to me. But every time when I talk to a Palestinian Christian they had a different reaction. They were were not always 100% eager to talk to me. They were afraid and they would always say, they'd they'd pull me aside and take me over to a corner or around a corner where they couldn't be overheard and they couldn't be seen. And they'd always say, don't use my name. You know, the Jews weren't afraid of my using their name. The Arab Muslims were not afraid of using their name. Arab Christians always said, Don't use my name. And they would whisper. And they and they all said something like this. Mr. McDermott, you know, professor, don't believe what you read in the media. The media will tell you that we Palestinian Christians. Our biggest enemy is the Israeli government. It's not true. In fact, we wish the, the, the Israeli government would um, do more of this and that, but they're not our biggest enemy. Our biggest enemy is our Muslim cousins. They want to kill us, but we can't say that. So the story the rest of the world hears hears about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that the Israeli government is the is this great oppressor, and 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 the Palestinians are just suffering terribly because of what the Israeli government does to them. That's not what the is that's not what the Arab Christians say. That's not what they told me. And by the way, um, I went into Palestinian homes. Now this is in Israel proper, not on the West Bank. Uh, Although the West Bank, there's a lot of prosperity there. Um, And I went into these beautiful Palestinian homes. This Palestinian lawyer, I went into his home. His kitchen is three times the size of my kitchen, probably cost five times what my kitchen cost. His home is far nicer than my home. So I think, unfortunately, people in Ireland, people in the United States, they hear about Palestinians and they think they all live in these miserable refugee camps. Not true, not true. The average Palestinian in Israel proper, where there's about two and a half million of them, by the way, <laughs> lives pretty well. And and better than some Americans, and better than, than some Irishmen.
0: Yeah.
1: And and only in Israel will a Palestinian Muslim or a Palestinian Christian have full liberty to practice his or her faith only in Israel, nowhere else in the Middle East. And Palestinians are not even allowed to be citizens in Lebanon or in Syria. They, they are tortured and killed right now in Syrian prisons. And the world media doesn't say a word about it. All the, the world media is only interested when Israel is shown to be the oppressor
0: unfortunately so that's most interesting and um i think your work is important for many reasons including that one especially in places like ireland where it's perceived through a very especially northern ireland it's perceived through a very black and white lens and i know what you're saying this oppressor oppressed distinction and everything's black and white but i think as your work shows and the facts show that that's not the case similar to the issue about african americans and that whole oppressor oppressed distinction that rewrites history and ignores all the facts and everything so I commend your work and those people that you mentioned for those reasons and many more and um, it's been great uh, that your work's brought some people together so many people together you've offered a message of peace and greater understanding so I want to thank you for your, um, your lifelong witness to the gospel so far and look forward to further works <laughs> So um, is there anything else that you're working on now, Jerry, Jerry, that you'd like to tell us about or that you still have the passion to get involved with in the future?
1: Well, I've got another book coming out uh, next month um, on, uh, called Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity. It's an academic book, but I, and I'm the editor, and I did uh, several um, chapters in there. Um, but it's accessible to non-academics, and I purposely made it so as uh, uh, as the editor, and that's always my one of my goals in all the books I edit. Um, that's coming out next month, and I'm writing a big book. It's I hope it to be the my, my magnum opus. Um, it's contracted with Baker Academic, uh, and it's called a History of the Worker Redemption. So I'm using Jonathan Edwards's. Um, Great work on how God redeems in all of history, not just starting with Jesus, but how God was redeeming all through the Old Testament. And I'm adding all my stuff on the world religions and Judaism. Uh, So I talk about what was going on in China and what was going on in the world religions and what the relationship is between the rise of these great religions and the rise of of Judaism Christianity. And I And 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 my book starts with the Councils of Redemption before the creation, and it ends with the end of the world. So I include I go through all biblical history and then also church history and then also to some degree secular history. And all in 500 pages I promised the publisher and and in accessible prose for for non um, scholars. Um, So I'm writing that now. I've done six chapters and I only have 29 to go. (laughs) And and it's, and it's, uh, and I hope to have it done by um, Christmas of 22.
0: Marvelous. Yeah. I look forward to that so much. And um, thank you very much for joining me today, Jerry. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Well, Mark, it's, I, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure for me. Thanks for inviting me.